Welcome to the Climate Smart Farming Show podcast. This podcast is sponsored by my supporters on Patreon and by B Books, publisher of A Farmer's Guide to Climate Disruption, which is now available in print, ebook, and audiobook. B Books also publishes climate smart romance novels by Tara L. Roy. Learn more at bbooks.org. You'll also get free climate smart downloads, including tips for weathering drought and flood, and the Farm Emergency Preparedness Plan. When you subscribe to BeeBooks newsletter, sign up at beebooks.org, beebooks.org. I'm your host, author and multimedia artist, Rebecca L. Fraser, and I'm excited to share this episode of the Climate Smart Farming Show podcast with you. So let's dig into it. Chapter 25, The Post-Carbon Farming System in Practice, A Conversation with Jack Algira of Stone Barns Center for Food and Agriculture. When I learned about Stone Barns Center for Food and Agriculture in 2017, I knew immediately that I had to visit. The 22,000-acre property was donated by the David Rockefeller family who was pasturing cattle on it, but knew the land had more potential. Stone Barns formed as a nonprofit in 2003 with a vision for people to have contact with the food system. Jack Algira came on board to plan the operation and lead the team. The center, located in Terrytown, New York, opened in 2004. During my visit, Algira showed me several micro-ecosystems that he and his team have cultivated for specific purposes on the farm. As you'll see, what Algira and his team of farmers, apprentices, and support staff are able to accomplish is bigger than what many farmers have the capacity to create. Yet, this system serves as a model of what post-carbon farming can look like. The practices employed here can be used by anyone with the skill and drive. Our conversation follows. Jack, what's happening here? We have a productive farm. Mm -hmm. We're selling to the public, we're selling to restaurants. It's a very active production, Mm -hmm. very diversified system, vegetables, grains, animals, uh, poultry and ruminants, pigs. So every, every... sort of aspect of the work we do is all based on sort of a central body of agroecological principles mm-hmm. that also uh, sort of have encouraged us to say, well, what are the indicators that suggest that these principles are truly helping? Do you consider stone barns a post-carbon farm? So it's more <laughs> important, I guess, that we uh, we're showing a general balance of health in the system. But the big thing for us is that we just participate in in the collection process, data collection, mm-hmm. as well as having the best practices we think are are actually encouraging the stability concept, not mm-hmm. just carbon, not just, yeah. you know, we don't want to keep bringing inputs on. We know the problem that right. that has created for us. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so how can we get to a system where we can wean ourselves off as inputs as much as possible? We're not trying to go back in time we're trying to manage our resources Mm -hmm. so that to me is a way to get towards resilience what is a post-carbon agricultural system 
stability is everything. Mm -hmm. In the carbon question, it's also the same issue. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not a contest. It's not a number game. Mm -hmm. It's it's a collective stability. Yeah. yeah. And when you talk about climate issues, the bigger things outside of carbon, I get it. The the soil is probably the one way, one place that we can actually absorb atmospheric carbon. Mm -hmm. There's a huge amount of debate whether or not we could capture 30% of what we put into it. Mm. So it's, that's a, it, it may be a defeatist conversation. Mm -hmm. That said, every place can improve. Every place can become more stable. Agricultural, agriculture doesn't have to be the sort of antithesis of, of conservation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we can be doing things that are really beneficial to us and to the place yeah. over long periods of time. Yeah. So that is, you know, obviously a balanced rotation of things and the use of cover crops and uh, the use of appropriate varieties in those spaces, diversity of things. Are you also breeding seed here? Well, we have 500 crops in play with 1,500, 2,000 different varieties of seeds in our seed closet. Like, there's a lot of stuff. It's not all stuff that we keep. Mm -hmm. And we work with the most local and the largest international uh, ethically minded seed companies that are out there mm. organic and a lot of dutch a lot of japanese seed companies okay um but also new york and maine and you know all around us oh, so johnny's johnny's mm -hmm. a good example mm -hmm. and and you know overlapping and recognizing what it means to have have a crop that can grow well in this place mm -hmm. and be resilient we need to make it easy yeah. It's kind of simple. Yeah. It, it can't be that prescribed that we get to this place where something is so specific to this place that we need to have this condition or else. Right. And now I grew up in New England. You know that the reality is, regardless of climate change, I don't remember a year ever in my whole life that was similar. It's not like the mm -hmm. sort of constants of the mm -hmm. Central Valley or something mm -hmm. yeah. that has all this sort of mm -hmm. synthetic you know, in infrastructure in it to make it so productive. It's wonderful, but it's not in the long run mm -hmm. a, a long-term sustainable thing. Sure. We're here, so that's the thing. So everybody got so used to this like very replicable design mm -hmm. for growing this thing. And now it rains or, or droughts and times that would have yeah. never, like all of a sudden it's like totally out of the ordinary. Right. And I guess from being a New Englander, I know enough that like we never know what was going to come to us. It could be totally saturated summer, it could be totally dry, yeah. it could be three feet of snow, or it could not snow all winter. Mm -hmm. And so we had a, I think we, as a people, have a certain ability to already have built in that adaption piece. Yeah. And we also have, you could say it's marginal land in terms of what the rest of agriculture has looked at in terms of taking all of the real vegetable production and real meat production mm. away to the flat ground, yeah. to the big ground, right. you know, and the New England farmers, including all the greenhouse space, thousands of acres of greenhouse space abandoned for the sake of the collapsed floral industry and all this stuff, mm. and we've lost a lot of that. And we never had the space to get to the size that our you know, American agriculture really became. That just moved. Right. So we have that sort of 
the we still have that hint of like Eric Sloan, you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> like what the old farm looked like. Okay. The diversified systems. They they never disappeared in New England mm. and in New York for that matter in some places. But right. for the most part that was ingrained and people in Iowa may have never seen that in their whole lives to see what that really was. Or even their mm. You know what I mean? It's a big right, difference in paradigm. Right. And it seems so, so complicated to start yeah. talking about diversity yeah. right. when you only grow corn and soy for generations. Yeah. And it's a it's totally different mm-hmm. conversation to be having to what we're talking about. Yeah. It doesn't mean that that can't be applied because obviously the Midwest is not a place for annual things. Mm-hmm. It's a perennial grassland. Mm-hmm. But we keep pushing against it here. You know, this place may not be the best place to just raise cattle, mm. which it had been. Okay. It's actually better to be diversified. Yeah. Because in some years, just the same way that diversity encourages resilience in that this year, this crop isn't doing great because it's just too wet. Yeah. But this crop is doing much better. It's like not a great tomato year, very good onion year. Mm-hmm. You know, and every time yeah. it's going to bounce hedge, around. You can hedge right. what you have, right? And yes. hedge your risk. Yeah. That's good as long as you're not the one that is totally known for tomatoes. Right. And you're forced to do that. It'd be better if your community knows you as a diversified farmer mm-hmm. and is willing to shift the diet based on what is happening. Mm-hmm. We have We have so much work to do and people being adventurous enough to be able to, you know, actually eat what's available to them and diversify what they eat and And, be creative. And you have a CSA, right? We do. How many people are in your CSA? 150. Okay. Yeah. But again, we we like to say what we two things we do here are Mm -hmm. we develop and and expand agroecological farming practices. We Mm -hmm. also want to create a culture of eating that can support that. Yes. And that is a key part of our work. How do you manage your rotation of crops at Stone Barns? So this is really the greater concept of what rotation really is. It's mm. processional, okay. right? This, yeah. this sort of one thing opening up to the next. Right. And the more we recognize what that looks like, the better. This space is a seven-year rotation. Seven. So it's, it's, uh, has a pretty broad diversity of crops. There's actually two rotations that are in this space. There's 14 cycling areas over the course of seven years. Mm-hmm. Some areas that are all in carrots, this was all in lettuce in the spring, this is carrots in the fall. Okay. And it won't be carrots again in that spot for seven years. Wow, okay. We start that with a fallow clover, a grain and clover space like this here. Mm-hmm. It essentially had an oat crop on it. We just ran the chickens over it. Um, the the chickens eat the grass and any of the extra seed that fell from the clover, the, from the oats, and then um, and then the clover grows up through and actually makes use of the manure that hits the ground. So this is the other thing about about timing in this whole thing is that there is a there is a sort of succession and a timing as it goes. Where do cover crops come into play in the rotation? Especially if you look at corn as a good example, or 
when people aren't using cover crops mm -hmm. or just single things. Yeah. It's a scarcity model. Right. It's that we don't have enough fertilizer for this, so no any other plants are competition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Rather than generating better water infiltration, better nutrient availability, mm -hmm. better stability in the space, mm -hmm. aggregate stabilities, uh, respiration, all of the things that actually keep us from having to add more fertility, yeah. cycling the fertility. Right. So if you're looking at phosphorus or potassium or nitrogen or any one of those primary elements, mm -hmm. you're talking about non-renewable fossil elements. Yeah. So how else do we get them? Legumes provide nitrogen, mm -hmm. essentially turns atmospheric nitrogen into plant available nitrate. Mm -hmm. um, the the cover crops like, like rye, the grasses, they're biomass, so they're generally developing carbon, but they're also pulling and activating through the rhizosphere and the sort of biome that lives under the soil, all of those organisms are assimilating and making available lots of elements okay. that are in the soil, locked up. Mm. You know, this concept of the fact that people just constantly need to add trace minerals to solve their problem. We're, we're in a glacial space. It was only 10,000 years ago, after mm -hmm. the civilization of agriculture, right? right? <laughs> this place, the the ice retreated. Mm -hmm. There is more trace mineral in this ground than we'll ever know what to do with. Mm -hmm. But if you can't access it, which the only way to access it is biology, okay. then there's deficiency. Mm -hmm. So unless you turn these things on and keep them into a living body cycle rather than a liquid sort of pour through, mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of, it's the difference between looking at something as a static thing yeah. or a living, moving and intentional thing. We have a certain amount of material that's in the ground, the, the biology is essentially mining off the rock. Mm -hmm. um, the plants are deciding what to do. To give you an example, one yeah. thing we might do is we, vegetables are really, uh, almost all the vegetables with the exception of the sort of tender perennials like tomatoes, mm -hmm. they're all essentially weed species. Okay. They, they came from weeds, they came, they were the simplest things we could grow. And in fact, they were the things that grew in the most disturbed environments. Mm. We just turned them into something really productive. Yeah. I feel very proud of that. Right. <laughs> right? So, okay. But the reality is they actually do need disturbance to do well. Mm. They need the release and their job is as a, a pioneer in that space. Mm -hmm. And then it's not. Right. Then stability takes place, especially in vegetables because they're so driven and to the ex that extent the commodity annual mm -hmm. and where it's it's really exploitive mm -hmm. right but it its job in the whole of nature was actually just to seal the surface okay for the real healing to happen and the stability to take place in primary environments mm -hmm. these vegetables are not from primary environments parsnip mm -hmm. kale mm -hmm. they're all from when the ground gets scraped yeah you know those things come up and so knowing who the plants are and where we're going to go with this is, is part of, you know, knowing what they're, what they need to be healthy. We make compost here on the farm. Um, we manage actually all of our neighbors' organic material to make compost also. Okay. So we're actually uh, managing about 2,000 acres worth of organic matter. There's about a thousand yards of animal manure from a local, uh, the cattle herd that's cattle. around us. Okay. There's cattle leaves from estates yeah. and all that kind of, no municipal materials, but yeah. all of the local material. Oh, okay. So we compost and then mix and we produce particular blends for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And this is what we apply. So example is maybe that we would take 
So compost by itself, people look at it as this thing. First of all, people often consider it fertilizer, which isn't correct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really, it's, it's more like a, and it's not going to be soil. Mm, it's it's okay. like uh, it's like fish food. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's an energy thing. So you okay. add it to the space, yeah. and then it gets put into the fold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The things that live in compost, all those organisms, are not the soil organisms. Right. The soil organisms eat the composting organisms, and they retain all the nutrition that was in those organisms. Mm-hmm. So it's Got a it. bubble in a bubble kind of thing. You know, it's yeah. not a, a pour through. Okay. So. That said, when people set up gardens and, and things like that, it's very common that you have bare ground, you spread as much compost on as possible, and then you have a rich, carbonous mm-hmm. space to grow your food in. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not correct. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that happens is the most valuable thing about compost is actually the biology that's in there. The biology has some other nutrition, mm-hmm. but essentially it doesn't take a lot to be effective. In fact, we keep learning that, and the Europeans know that very well in organics because they're very specific about not having a lot of compost, like as little compost as possible mm-hmm. on the surface. Mm-hmm. It's very effective. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah. Because they're saying it's necessary for organic agriculture to use compost, mm-hmm. but a lot is pollution. Mm. And the time that we apply it is also really important. So when you just put it on bare ground, the biotic community is not there in the strength enough to actually use what you put on. Instead, what happens is a lot gets leached through, mm-hmm. volatilized in the sun, rather than putting it on a live crop where the plants, you know, the, the kohlrabi has this sort of bushy root system. And mm-hmm. all around that root system, it is letting loose all this sugar and turning on all this biology that's in there that would otherwise just be dormant in the soil it, without the kohlrabi being there. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's activating whatever the biology, the bacteria, the fungi and the protozoas and all those creatures. They're doing their thing because the plant is there. Okay. If they're not there, there's other things going on. Right. But the point is, if we put a cover crop down and the way we do it here is this cover has chickens on it at the moment. Mm-hmm. We mowed off the ground, uh, we cut down the barley that was on here, let the chickens on, they peck through the clover, and then we move the birds off. And any of their manure gets absorbed by the root of the, the rhizosphere, the body that's around the plant roots, mm-hmm. and all the things that can put it into play. Yeah. It keeps it from leaching away. The amount of time that we keep the chickens on is important because it's essentially like a fertilizer spreader. Mm-hmm. The chickens eat so much grain, they convert that potassium, that phosphorus, that nitrogen, that calcium into, you know, whatever they're 40% efficient or something. So they really are manuring Mm -hmm. what you're feeding them. Mm -hmm. And that goes into the soil. Mm -hmm. It gets activated by the biology and the roots. It gets put into the living clover Mm -hmm. and stays in there and grows. And then we turn that clover in and we grow our crop in it. Mm -hmm. That makes use the same way with the compost. Applying compost to living surfaces Mm -hmm. makes it much more valuable and keeps it from just flowing away into the ocean. How does the composting process relate to climate disruption and climate resilience? Our role is part of the sort of stabilizing, productive stabilizing element of agriculture is to produce off the space, but don't just let it all flow away. Mm-hmm. You know, this, we're, the more we learn about mm-hmm. health mm-hmm. is just, 
it's it's subtler and mm -hmm. we have to keep evolving mm -hmm. toward that subtlety mm -hmm. less addition mm -hmm. okay yeah the reason why we dumped so much in was because we just took those variables as constants mm -hmm. we know we'll always have enough water we'll always have right. enough nitrogen mm -hmm. to make but we know that's not true right so there's one perspective is well, it's not a problem. This is the best corn year we've ever had. So why worry? Yeah. The other is, well, I have a lot of work to do before I get to a place that's actually uh, not just self-sustainable, but even community sustainable. Mm -hmm. I, there's a few people in the local community that we could move things around and share products and do stuff like that. I don't have to do it myself. Mm -hmm. so Self-sustainability is not necessarily the, the goal. Yeah. But it would be to reduce as much synthetic input as possible and try to make the place as generative and resilient as it can be. That's where climate change comes into this whole thing. And in the end, a lot of it has to do with water mm. because water is the thing that washes all the elements away. So you want to capture it and store it for later use. Yeah. And if you have okay. terrible soils that don't have that kind mm -hmm. of stability and respiration mm -hmm. and biology, mm -hmm. then the whole mm -hmm. thing, especially because the issue with climate change is not so much I mean, it may be the heating, mm -hmm. but more importantly, it's the dramatic extreme mm -hmm. of weather. Yes. Yeah. That's where we lose all our fertility. Mm -hmm. Right. An entire summer of solid mm -hmm. rain, an entire summer of total drought. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Resilience is that totally parched soil had had enough years mm -hmm. of care and attention that it can still produce mm -hmm. and hold some better water. And in a totally wet year, the soils can drain well enough to not totally sog up and be full of disease. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's resilience. It's not just solving for one problem. Right. Mm -hmm. Climate change is so complicated in right. terms of what our expectations are going to be. When I started writing about climate change, which of course we're now calling climate disruption, and its relationship to farming, I had no idea of the complexities of the subject. And communicating about it is so important. It's more than just taking care of plants or understanding the relationship. So it's, it's understanding ecology. It's understanding culture. It's under, mm -hmm. Right. You know, it's understanding that uh, what makes this, what makes a cuisine is not just what, well, first it starts with what the place is mm -hmm. and what it can provide. Mm -hmm. And then you immediately start this dialogue with your community, which is what do you want to do with what we just gave you? And how does that change what I do? Okay. Now we have a dialogue, and if we can do that, and it can sustain over 20 years, 50 years, 500 years, mm -hmm. whatever, then you have a cuisine. This is what happened. Right. But we don't recognize that right. in a way that's like, oh, okay, I see. So we're not, you know, we don't have a corn cuisine, even though that's our crop. Right. Because it really isn't sustainable. Mm -mm. Even right. in the best possible practice, right. it's not the only option. Right. And, you know, again, it's mostly because it's, I think, you know, the clarity in that is we know by itself it can't sustain itself. Mm -hmm. It's sustained itself because we continually add inputs. Right. And we're caught in this trap now of, uh, you know, increasing additions and all kinds of things where we need to change the genetics all the time just to compete with the the increasing pathogen pressures yeah. and weed pressures. I have interviewed seed breeders who feel it's their job to feed the world, 
but they don't necessarily look at the impacts of their work on the ecosystem where they're planting their genetically engineered varieties. We're not really trying to save the world. Mm -hmm. We're also not trying to feed the world. Right, from this, from any farm, right? Are you saying, or from this particular one? (laughs) To look at it as the sole responsibility of a farm. Over years, I've interviewed a lot of people and genetic, you know, geneticists and whatever, and award-winning, you know, scientists who, you know, created the new strain of rice that's whatever, Mm -hmm. flood, drought-resistant, flood-resistant, blah, 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 through genetic engineering. And with that very idea that, like, this is going to feed the world and and not getting, you know, I'm asking her, like, well, do you, you know, how does this affect the mm-hmm. the butterflies and the, oh, it has no effect. Mm-hmm. Well, have you researched mm-hmm. that? Well, no, we don't need to. We, we don't need just, to, yeah, right, right. It couldn't have an well, effect. Like, yeah. I mean, you should always be, uh, <laughs> should always be skeptical of single solutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that like that, rather than, you know, learning about what we have at our fingertips that we have a responsibility to just not ruin the place mm. not just wash it away <laughs> right. agriculture is supposed to be generative right yeah i mean we don't have a lot of really inalienable inherent rights mm. as people yeah there are a few things though mm-hmm. like the relationship to land and yeah. genetics mm-hmm. and knowledge i mean there's definitely a whole group of people in the world that feel like all of those things are just for us to use up right that's just how the picture is supposed to go. Yeah. And then some of us say, well, actually, it doesn't have to look like that. Mm-hmm. We can still have that that reverence and honor for place. Yeah. And it can still be generative for the things that are around it. Mm-hmm. As a vegan, I think a lot about whether agriculture can be regenerative and have reverence for animals. So what do you think? How would someone have livestock without eating them? Would it have to be a farm animal sanctuary where animals are foraging and grazing? Well, the question is, is something, you raising know, but... an animal for manure, what does that, what does that do for of us as a, as from a vegan mindset? Mm. And, you know, the, the important thing that I look at this is, well, even when we get into the grass-fed conversation, the mm-hmm. conversation always goes to, can we produce as much grass-fed beef as we're producing in the CAFO? Mm-hmm. Why is that the first question? Right. What can our ecology yeah, is handle? Mm. What is a cow? Right. Yeah. What is it replacing? <laughs> yeah. right. How does it fit into a design that we are working with? So do you know Ridge Shin? Yeah. I do. I just talked to him this morning. Yeah. Oh, I just talked to him like last yeah. week or two weeks ago. Yeah. Wow. I just literally, yeah. we had an hour and a half conversation this morning. So the buffalo. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Well, yeah. the point being, everybody, let's, let's yeah, keep walking because yeah. this, this okay. is where I feel like, I mean, I'm a, I am born a plant person. Mm, okay. I've been in plant science. I've, I've done a lot of botanical work and and I, I loved going to, I was vegan for eight years, but I also raise animals and I have a passion for that. I also grew up with that, mm-hmm. but I feel like I don't have that drive to, the, the issue is around economics. It's to say that, well, there's this insatiable demand for meat because people <laughs> don't understand what its reason is. Yeah. Or the fact that this this concept that we need all that protein and that's the thing yeah. that's going to keep us alive. Right, right, like they just don't get it. It's right. mind-blowing to me. But if we yeah. all stopped <laughs> eating animals tomorrow, it wouldn't stop using animals. Right. This is a big difference. Mm-hmm. What is the purpose of the animal? And are we inclined to eat it? Mm. It's a, a second question. Mm-hmm. 
It's, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if we want milk, I mean, let's just say vegetarianism, mm -hmm. to produce milk, even to the, the most sort of natural way, mm -hmm. you need a mother. Yes. Which means you have a child. Right. And what do you do with all these children, right. <laughs> essentially? Right. If you don't want to eat them, you still have a lot of cows mm -hmm. having calves yeah. that you have to figure out what, what is their purpose. Yeah. So that's, and it's the same way as that, like the idea of the 40 billion broiler chickens that the world eats every year mm -hmm. came out of this thing where we wanted egg. We, we're so separated. What Stone Barns becomes as this place is a is really in a very basic sense, how do you get people grounded again? Yeah. How do you get them in relation again? Mm -hmm. Right? Because we have stories, we have, you know, everybody comes in from a different place. But the thing is, it's like, how can you understand and, and appreciate your food if you can't see where it's coming from or yeah. what its real purpose is? So I mean, the fact that kids can't don't know where eggs come from or mm -hmm. that chicken is a chicken. Yeah. We have separated yeah. and we've done so much in that a moment of separation mm -hmm. that has done everything for our society. Mm. Everything, bad and good. Right. But we also took this really naive approach to the simplicity of nature. Agriculture, which was the sort of boon of our civilization is now arguably the thing that's going to take us down yes right yeah so we're doing it wrong right. Period. <laughs> right like when we notice that at home do we stop and choose something new yeah hopefully. or do we just wallow in it <laughs> yeah right <laughs> people make different choices some exactly. people wallow yeah or or more importantly rationalize it yeah, yeah. and i rationalize all these things mm -hmm. that we're so good at yes we are now standing in this amazing, beautiful greenhouse with glass panels in the ceiling that open, and you designed it? Mm -hmm. With greenhouse systems, this is where I think we've taken it to a different level. No one has internal crop rotation soil design year-round for soil and greenhouses. We're using modern design, modern infrastructure and technology. Mm -hmm and using traditional growing techniques with modern varieties. Varieties that you've developed, right? What's this tropical looking plant? Um, so some crops like this, mm -hmm. we, what we're doing in the summer, right, is we have crops in here that are essentially low, low energy inputs. Mm -hmm. Like we don't want a lot of microgreens in here and stuff in the middle of summer because what we're trying to do is this is actually a really high value crop, mm -hmm. but low touch. Mm -hmm. okay. Because during the summer, we're producing tons of vegetables outdoors. We mm. need to compete with ourselves. Right. <laughs> like, you know, we want to produce a good complementary crop. So ginger and turmeric, uh, baby peppers, mm -hmm. uh, lots of rows and constant rotations of cilantros and dills and basils and things that are like always moving through. Mm -hmm. And then the place rotates out to the next crop. Okay. So we're in the preparation now as new beds get that put together. You can see down here, there's more. So as we finish crops, we have bed preparation for new seedings of, of spinach and of carrots. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's all about timing, getting ourselves to a place of winter production at a certain time of the season. This house has never see. been sprayed oh. organically oh, yeah. or conventionally. Mm. Yeah. And I make that point because mm -hmm. We're not chasing disease. Mm -hmm. We're dealing in health all the time. Mm -hmm. This is a, a really important part 
like I said, we can only learn from the experience that we're engaged in. Mm -hmm. Better plant health breeds better plant health. Mm -hmm. There's very little data from minimally controlled structures. Mm -hmm. Of course, you can add tons of control. Yeah. But the problem with control is you end up dealing mostly with pathology rather than health. Yeah. Control leads to pathology. Right. inevitably yeah because it's out of balance with what the system wants to do rather than working with that mm -hmm. over time in a space like this we've increased the organic matter from what was baseline at four and a half to stabilized at nine percent in mm -hmm. 2009 mm -hmm. and we've maintained that organic matter without it's it's our my feeling to not raise we were talking before higher organic matter does not mean better it is not a game of money in, in numbers. Right. When do you apply compost? We apply it to the cover crop. Oh, okay. And it eats it. Oh. Everything is about feeding. Yeah. Yes. Not, it's, it's, it's feeding the soil. Yeah. Do we work it in or do we like leave I it said, on top and then put the cover on, crop on? Um, well, with, when, it, when there's a live cover, we apply it to the top. So what happens is, Let's say we have a crop that's grown like this tall, it's grasses and legumes or whatever. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll cut it once. Okay. And that, all that material will lay on the ground. Right. That way it makes it easier for us to spread over the top if we are gonna apply compost. Okay. And then what happens is the material falls down below the, all of the Plants loose material on the yeah. surface. Yeah. What, because volatilization is a concern. When, when compost is laid just on the surface, any of the nitrogen and carbon and everything else just oxidizes or you know goes back in the atmosphere you want it to stay cool and dark okay. and you want it to enter okay. so once that turns in in this case we might set up a bed we pull out a live crop mm -hmm. and we just cut the surface off we actually leave all the roots in the ground in this system mm -hmm. and take the surface plant material off mm -hmm. then we apply compost and kelp over the surface, and then we broad fork it in. So we open the ground and a bit of compost falls down, but most of it stays on the surface. And there's no rototilling, there's no mm. deep churning. It's yeah. all just about mm -hmm. fracturing, Okay. right? Because we want the air, Yes. but we don't want to break what has taken so long to form. So disturbance, but not disruption. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. like, if you just, we, we want to be able to get to a place where material goes in. We are, like I said before, a disruption mm -hmm. and disturbance is entirely a part of this. The mm -hmm. key is to only do it to the extent that's necessary to release what those plants need. Yeah. And, yeah. and that takes, well, for one, it takes experience mm -hmm. to trust how little it actually takes. Because mm -hmm. often... More inexperience leads to wanting to put more on. Better is more is better. Yeah. More fertilizer, more compost. Buy in something, buy in, I can buy a product and that will save my thing. Yeah. Let's not touch it. Yeah. Why is it that we think that that is, what is the, yeah. how has consumerism fallen into this work? Yeah. Rather than trusting engineering mm -hmm. to solve our problem. Mm -hmm. This is really important. There are engineering concepts in this house that, um, have nothing to do with conventional or organic or anything. The building, the structure itself creates an atmosphere mm -hmm. that we have control of. Yes. And the, it has its limitations. When do you open the roof? Well, when it, when it stops raining and when it's above 65 degrees, the house will open. Okay. 
And um, if and if is that on like a timer that it automatically does that, sensors? or do you have to come it's on and a, do that? It's on a, yeah. Well, you can or see yes, there's a there's a hanging right. sensor in the middle at soil height. It's like a little canister. Oh hanging from there. yeah. And yeah. then um, there's also rain gauges and weather stations. All that stuff is data collecting and mm -hmm. stuff that we have backup. But it's mm -hmm. also controlling a motor. Okay. Simple. Yeah. Um, we don't do any, like all the watering is done by control and timing. There's no no uh, no timers or anything like that. It's all um, it's all by eye and by training. Why not use an automatic irrigation system? One of the things that I teach my managers and my perennial team especially is to never give up their relationship to the mastery of the work that they do. Mm. Like they can try to make it easier for themselves, but if they're taking away, if they're taking a shortcut around something yeah. and taking the mastery away from the work, then they're not going in the right direction. Right. Is that just by putting the water on timer doesn't give them any better relationship or understanding of the water. Mm. And it doesn't get them any closer to be able to problem solve before an epidemic. Right. Like too much water, too little water. If they're just relying on the timer to solve that problem mm -hmm. rather than the observation. Mm -hmm. okay. So that's a really important thing. Every time it's like learning how to use a sharp tool, mm -hmm. what it means to take care of your equipment, mm -hmm. what it means to choose the right tool for the job yeah. and the right time to use it. Mm -hmm. And all these things are, are masteries. Yeah. And why we're in a world that we think that it has to be so simplified that just anybody could pick it up and run with it. We just want to get back in touch, mm. which means basically observing the cycles of land that we have, recognizing the impact that the animals take and adapting mm -hmm. our methods to what we're seeing. The intention is to find a way out of what has essentially been not working. Jack, thank you so much for the time that you've spent with me and for this fantastic tour. I'm in love with this space and um, I've learned so much talking to you. I, I know my audience will as well. Thanks again. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. My visit to Stone Barns was one of the highlights of my journalism career and has inspired me as a writer of both fiction and nonfiction. This is the final episode of the Climate Smart Farming Show podcast. For more information about climate smart farming, check out my book, A Farmer's Guide to Climate Disruption, which is available in audiobook, ebook, and print. And remember to visit bbooks.org for your free downloadable PDFs filled with tips, tricks, and resources to help you thrive during the changing climate. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, you can reach me through my publisher at info at bbooks.org. That's info, I-N-F-O, at b-e-e-books.org. Thanks for listening to the Climate Smart Farming Show podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like my book, A Farmer's Guide to Climate Disruption, now available in ebook, print, and audiobook. To support this podcast and my other creative endeavors for as little as $1 a month, please visit patreon.com forward slash Rebecca L. Fraser.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.